who would say, Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain.
alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin. Lost without hope with no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in. When death was arrested, my life began. Ash was redeemed, only beauty.
God, you are the giver of life. You are our healer, our sustainer, our redeemer. You break our chains and you set us free. Breathe your life into our souls, Father. Fill us with a deeper awareness of your abiding presence with us. We love you.
Please be seated. As we enter a time of uh, prayer together, I did want to mention that uh, Dan Woolsey, who has been dealing with illness for the last eight or nine years, died last night. And so we want to remember the, the Woolsey family in our prayers. And uh, today and throughout this week, I don't have arrangements, haven't made arrangements yet, but uh, let's pray for the Woolsey family as well as other needs that we bring with us today and other concerns in our world. Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you today for Jesus, for his beautiful, loving, powerful name, his reputation, his character, who he is, you in flesh. Thank you that he has come and transformed our lives in this world. And because he's come, we can bring to you the burdens and the concerns and the struggles of our lives and and of our world. Today, Father, we pray for the Woolseys. We ask that your grace would be upon them. Kathy and children, Warren and Ella, and siblings, extended family, may they know your grace and mercy upon them. Pray, Father, for the needs that we are aware of, and maybe those that we aren't, of folks going through painful experience, health issues, struggles that come to us in this this life with all of its pains and burdens. We pray that you would bring your healing power in each situation in every person's life. We pray that you would give us wisdom about the future, that you would meet the needs that we live with every day. Help us as we work and, and in our homes and as we relate to one another in dorms and apartments and classrooms. Lord, that we would know your spirit in the middle of all that is happening. And that we would sense the transforming power of Jesus. Lord, we pray for the world beyond us. Think about our nation, the divisiveness of our nation. Lord, help us as your people to be agents of healing. We pray for people who are grieving from recent uh, violence from recent natural disasters. We pray that you would bring your peace, your grace, that you would bring your people and, and the, the people of this nation and, and the wider world to bring help and hope. Father, we do pray for the wider world. Places where war is just life. Bring peace. Places, Father, where there are where refugees have have no hope of ever going home and live in fear and anxiety about their surroundings and their situation. Pray, Father, that you would work miraculously to bring them home. Father, we pray for your church. Thank you for the Austins and their work in the Czech Republic. Help them to continue to to encourage the church there and to to be a witness to the people around them in their lives that they would continue to bear witness to who you are.
We think of our brothers and sisters in Somalia as the violence in Mogadishu has increased and we were, we were reminded that the, the Christians in Somalia have no freedom and, and, and live under the threat of death every day. Protect them. Give them grace to live their lives. Give them grace to be, to be agents of hope despite their circumstances. Father, we are preparing uh, next week to begin another three-week prayer vigil. These have been glorious times for us as a church in the wider community, and we are trusting you that this will happen again. Stir our hearts to come, to pray, to be open to you, and to let you speak into our lives. And as we pour out our hearts to you in these hours of prayer, work in us individually and corporately for your glory and the sake of your kingdom. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for loving us. We offer our prayers in the loving, strong, powerful, beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Especially given... Uh, the recent challenges that we've faced. One of the most powerful aspects of it is the idea that we can carry our burdens and our the things that weigh us down, the things that uh, are the pain in our lives. We can carry those to God and exchange them, really. Give, hand them over to Him and receive His peace through prayer. You know, It's a way to unburden our heart and our mind and to give those things to God and and it's in those times I think where we receive that peace that passes all understanding John and Nancy were talking a little bit about uh, their experiences with prayer this past year. And as a church, we believe that uh, prayer is vital uh, to our relationship with God, to uh, our relationship with each other, and to the wider world. And so this is the ninth year that we have uh, we've done this uh, three-week, 24-7 prayer vigil. I want to encourage you to, uh, after you have a few moments after the service, go downstairs, just go right down the steps here, and uh, go in the prayer room, walk around, see what's there. This year we've designed things around some of the ideas that have been coming up in the Minor Prophets. And the prophets give us a sort of a kaleidoscope, a diamond, facets of the diamond look at God's nature and his character. And so those, that, those ideas you'll see down there in the prayer room as we, uh, we think about ways that's prompting us about how we can pray. When you go to the prayer room to pray, you can pray however you want to. And do whatever you want to do. It's, it's a time for you and God. Some people come by themselves. Some people come uh, with another person. 
families come, uh, dorms have come, teams have come. It doesn't really make any difference. We just want you to come and be a part of this event. You can sign up anytime. Uh, we actually have just this week uh, put up a new website for the church. It's the same address, but we've redone the whole website. And uh, one of the reasons we have it up, even though it's not totally finished, is because we wanted to get the prayer calendar up and running. In the last few years, we've had some trouble with the prayer calendar. We have a new one with a new site. It's very mobile-friendly, very tablet-friendly. So uh, you, can, you can sign up anytime. And I just want to encourage you to be a part of that. Take a look at the room after the service and make this a part of your journey as over the next three weeks starting next Sunday. Good morning. The reading from this morning is from the book of Nahum. An oracle, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of, of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. The Lord takes revenge on his adversaries and continues to rage against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but his power is great. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. The earth is laid waste before him. The world and all that dwell therein. Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. The Lord is is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an end of his adversaries. Though they be strong and many, says the Lord, they will pass away. Though I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. I will break the yoke of bondage from your neck and tear the chains off, uh, tear the chains of Assyrian oppression. The Lord has given commandment about you, O Nineveh. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the graven image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Your enemy is coming to crush you, Nineveh. Man the ramparts, watch the road, prepare the defenses, collect your strength. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots flash like flame, a forest of spears waving above them. The river gates are opened. The palace is in dismay. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her maidens moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters flow away. Halt! Halt! they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. There is no end of treasure. Desolation and ruin. Hearts faint and knees tremble. Where is the lion's den? where the lion brought his prey, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no more be heard. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and booty, the crack of whip, the rumble of wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, 
and this because Nineveh, the beautiful and faithless city, mistress of deadly charms, enticed the nations with her beauty. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt. All who see you will shrink back and say, Nineveh lies in ruins. Where are the mourners? Does anyone regret your destruction? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile, protected by the river on all sides, walled in by water? Yet she was carried into captivity. Her little ones were dashed in pieces, and her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will seek refuge from the enemy. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts, settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O Assyrian king. Your princes lie dead in the dust. Your people are scattered across the mountains, with no one to gather them together. There is no healing for your wound. Your injury is fatal. All who hear of your destruction will clap their hands for joy. Where can anyone be found who has not suffered from your unceasing evil? This is the word of the Lord. Let me invite you to uh, take a moment and just share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. So I figured after a scripture reading like that, we needed to do something else to get ourselves acclimated. That's probably one of the most um, hesitant responses to this is the word of the Lord that I've heard in a long time. It's sort of like a question, thanks be to God, really? It's one of those passages that, you know, we probably don't read a lot in church, maybe for good reason. Um, We probably don't read it ourselves very much. And quite frankly, as I was getting into the prophecy of Nahum, I'm thinking to myself, okay, why again did I want to preach from the minor prophets? I think this is probably one of the most difficult of all the 12 prophets to figure out, to understand, to try to get to the heart of. And I think the reason it bothers us is because it's so descriptive of God's anger. I mean, you know, this is pretty graphic kinds of things. And actually, we cleaned it up a little bit in this translation from what it could be. So, I think the reason that bothers us is because we have this image that God is nice. 
God doesn't talk like that. God doesn't do that kind of thing. God is nice. It's, it's back to Christian Smith's survey 10 or so years ago that discovered that the younger generations in this country, their, their faith was based on what he called moralistic therapeutic deism. That God is it's just, it's just good. And, and God's sort of a, a counselor that just keeps patting us on the back and giving us hugs and says, you know, you're, you're good. And deism, he's separated from us, doesn't have anything to do with our lives until we need something, and then we call him in. And there is this sense that, that there is this mindset that God is sort of a cosmic butler, a divine servant who just comes at our beck and call, does whatever we want him to do, and then leaves us alone. It's a God who, quite frankly, looks a lot like us. But the reality is, that picture of God is not just skewed, but in the words of J.B. Phillips, who wrote a book back in the 50s or 60s, our God is too small. It's a very limited, small, confining view of God. And the prophecy of Nahum is expanding our minds into the fullness of who God is. The minor prophets keep telling us again and again, this is who God is. I think it's the thing that ties them all together, is that in a variety of ways, through a variety of images, the minor prophets are telling us more than anything else, this is God. This is who God is. And that's why we designed the prayer room the way that we did with uh, kaleidoscope kinds of pictures and, and the image of a diamond, because it, it is a reminder to us that God is so much bigger and wider and deeper than we typically think. And I think there is something of that happening in this prophecy. God is angry because Assyria is so evil. God is angry because the evil that Assyria represents has severe consequences for people he loves. And I wonder if one of the reasons why we struggle with this image of God is because we don't take evil as seriously as God does. We have a tendency to ignore evil, to excuse evil, to justify evil, particularly if we have any hand in it. We just don't take it as seriously as God does. We don't see the ramifications that evil has on us and on this world. And God does. So God God speaks his words of judgment against Assyria. Assyria is this nation that we talked about with Jonah, and we'll be back to Jonah in a second, but it's a nation that God uses, he calls to do his work against the nation of Israel that's rejected him. And he calls them to come to the nation of Judah and to, to punish them because they have turned away from him. But his goal is to, to punish them so that they will turn to him. But Assyria takes on their goal to annihilate Israel. And Assyria becomes this nation of great evil and evil practices. I mean, they are a ruthless people. They are probably the most cruel nation in the the whole known world, in the ancient Near East. 
The things that they do to their enemies and those they conquer, you, you couldn't talk about in a setting like this. It is almost, it's almost unimaginable, the things that they do. And God has now stepped in and says to them, I am going to deal with that. You can't treat people like that. I've tried to warn you, but you don't listen to me. So I'm going to step in and I'm going to take care of it because I'm not going to let evil do that and the consequences of it. Now, it doesn't mean that God is no law has changed his character. Sometimes there are people who say, well, you know, the image that they think God is, uh, in one sense, he changes and he becomes something else, much nicer, the kind of God that we want. But that's not the case at all. God is not changed. It's just that at this point, it calls for something different. God is still, as he describes himself, slow to anger and abounding in love. Jonah prophesies about a hundred years before Nahum, and I suspect Jonah is thinking to himself, why couldn't I have said what Nahum said? I would have loved that. I would have relished that. I would have embraced it with everything in me. But Jonah's upset with God because he, he seems to ignore the injustice in Assyria. And God gives them a chance to repent, and they do, but it doesn't last very long. And soon they're back to their ways and maybe even worse. And God gives them a hundred years to change. And they decide they don't want to do it. And that's why in verse 3, Nahum says, the Lord is slow to anger. Now the Hebrew word, Hebrew language likes to turn abstract concepts into concrete pictures. And so it doesn't actually say in the Hebrew, slow to anger. What it says is long of nose. And to be be red-nosed, to be hot-nosed, is to be be angry. And so what it's really saying is that God has a long nose. And it takes a long time for the anger, for the heat to get to the end of his nose. He is patient. When I read that, I thought, that's why I'm so patient. I, I can see it now. Something good. God is slow to anger, Nahum says. The prophet Ezekiel writes in the the 18th chapter of his prophecy. God says, do you think I like to see wicked people die? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. But there comes a point where enough is enough. There comes a point where people have so rejected God that God says, I'm going to give you what you want. Because if you let that go, they're going to destroy the world. If you let the evil continue, the consequences of that and the destructiveness of that is just going to continue to grow and grow and grow. And God says, I'm not going to, I'm going to take action against you because I love these people too. I'm not going to let you keep getting away with that. And so God, though he's slow to anger, holds evil accountable. I missed something in this prophecy when I was reading through it the first few times. It was until the middle of this week that it struck me. It was staring me right in the face. I don't know how I didn't see it. But it all of a sudden struck me that the very first words out of the prophet's mouth are these. The Lord, Yahweh, 
is a jealous God. The Lord is a jealous God. And the more I thought about that, the more I pondered that, the fact that it's the very first words out of his mouth makes me wonder if that isn't something that's key to understanding the whole rest of the prophecy. Now, that bothers us because we think of jealousy, we think of pettiness, controlling. We think of people who, who are confining and smothering, and, and we have a very negative view of jealousy. But that's not exactly what the word means. In fact, jealousy might not even be the best translation. The King James used to translate it zealous. And it's the sense of being passionate about something, caring so much about something that, that you, get, you get emotional about it and you get involved about it. And that's what Nahum is saying. The Lord is zealous. He is jealous. And what is he jealous about? He's jealous for his people. He's jealous for his people, Israel. Why? Because they're so special and nobody else matters? No, because Israel is the means of God accomplishing his purposes for the whole world. God calls out Israel to be his people. And he says, now, I want you to live for me. I want you to reflect me so that all the rest of the nations of the world will come and worship me because they see me in you. It's the same word that God gives to the church. God is zealous for the church, not just because the church is so special and he doesn't care about anyone else. It's because he cares about the whole world. And before people will ever come to God, they need to see what it looks like for, to worship God and to be a follower of God. And we're setting that example. And Assyria is trying to, and Assyria is representing evil, is attempting to demolish God's great plans of flourishing and life for the whole world. And he's jealous for that. He says he's zealous about it. Dennis Kinlaw says that word jealous, it comes out of the, the realm of marriage. You think a couple stands here in front of the church and they hold hands and they say vows and they give each other rings. And, and what they're really saying is from now on, nothing's more important in this world than you and me. No other relationships are more important than you and me. Nothing else that happens is more important than you and me. And we are jealous for each other. We are jealous for this relationship. And we will do everything in our power to fight off anything or anyone that might try to fracture our relationship. When I read that, it struck me that maybe the most, one of the most important things that we say at a wedding ceremony, maybe the one of the most overlooked things that we say at a wedding ceremony, takes place after the couple has... They're giving away, and the couple said their vows, and they've exchanged rings. And the minister says, "Now that uh, now that they have they have exchanged rings and said their vows to each other, I declare that you that they are your husband and wife in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit." And then the minister says, "Those whom God has joined together, let no one separate." That's not spoken to the couple. That's spoken to everybody sitting out here watching. What he's really saying is, y'all be careful. Be careful. The kind of influence you have on this couple. Be thoughtful. Be careful about about, uh, making sure that anything you say or do isn't coming between them. God cares so much for the world that he's jealous for his agents of telling the world. 
And that's why God's jealousy really is good news. It seems odd to hear about good news in the middle of this, you know, prophecy that sort of shakes us. But when you get to the 15th verse of chapter 1, it says, Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. And he's virtually quoting a number of places in the prophet Isaiah. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. When the, when the angels appear to the shepherds out on that, that night of Christ's birth, says, I, we're here to proclaim to you good news. That's what Jesus says he begins his ministry in Nazareth. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news. The gospel is always good news. And even in the midst of a prophecy like this that makes us shake our heads, it's good news. Why is it good news? Because God is declaring he is greater than evil. Despite what it looks like, despite the way that that their world and our world seems to be enamored and, and suffocated by evil, God is declaring he is still in charge. That prophecy from Isaiah 52 ends with, your God reigns. And that's the message of this. And maybe that is why... God is so graphic about his description of what is going to happen to Assyria as the representation of evil because he wants everybody reading this to remember God is in control. It it is important for us to understand that this is a prophecy that's not that we didn't find in the scriptures of the Assyrians. This is a prophecy we find in the scriptures of the Hebrews, of the Israelites. And that means it is primarily a prophecy spoken to Israel. And the prophecy that's spoken to Israel is, don't give up hope. Despite how it looks, God is still in control. Worship him, trust him, follow him. He's enough. You can count on him. But I think that good news is also a warning. It's direction. What does it mean? How do we live as God's people in a world that's so enamored with evil and that fights against us? How do we live like that? I think it's such an important word because our natural inclination is to do exactly what Assyria does. To use violence as the means of accomplishing God's purposes. Now, when we think about violence, the first thing that comes to our mind is war, hand-to-hand combat, ways that we physically hurt other people. But I think if you define violence a little, a little more carefully, I don't think it's just I hurt somebody else physically, but it's anything we do that hurts another person for any other reason than love and any other way than love. Sometimes the things that we say to people, sometimes the things that we do, make people feel hurt. And if we do it from a, from a perspective of vengeance, then that's violence. But if we do it from a perspective of love because we care, then that's different. And I think we... We get sucked up into violence, not where we use our fists or weapons, but I think most of the time with our words. You know, in the church, we're too civil to have fistfights with each other most of the time. But we use our words 
The words that come out of our mouths, the words that we type on our keyboard, the words that we punch into our phone, we all know the pain of words. You know, when we were kids, you know, that little, little rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It's one of the biggest lies that any of us tell. Words hurt far more than sticks and stones. We're all living examples of that. We have all had experiences where someone's words cut us so deeply. Years later, we still don't forget. Long after bruises have healed, there's still that wound. And in the church, like everywhere else, we defend ourselves by saying, well, we're right. I mean, we have the truth on our side, and we have to tell people the truth. And we're right, and they're wrong. We've got to make sure we know that. We live in a world that is continually fighting, I'm right, you're wrong. We, there's something about winning, about competition that drives us so much that we have to win. We have people have to know that we're right. People have to know that we're the best. People have to know that, that we've figured it out, that we have the truth. And we will shove it down their throats if we have to. Because we have the truth. And we justify our words and our behavior because we're right. Interestingly enough, Nineveh, the Assyrians, believe they're right. I mean, after all, the, 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 the narrative in the Kings and the Chronicles and even here in verses 12 and 11 of this prophecy tell us God called Assyria to be his agent of punishment upon Israel and upon Judah. They were God's agents. That made them right. But they took that too far and said, if we're right, we can do anything we want to. And they crossed way over the line and went from being God's agents to being agents of evil. And I think one of our struggles, as we talked last week, is that when we get so focused on the destination, so focused on the end... That we will do, that our goal is to get there as fast as we can in any way that we can, then we tend to live our lives with a, with a pathway of carnage behind us. But when we live for the journey, when we live for every moment with our Savior, people matter. What we do matters, how we communicate matters. And I think that's the calling. That's the good news to every one of us. In this world of violence, in which we are so numb to violence, and we take it for granted, and we don't even think about it most of the time. We don't even pause to ponder that much what our words are doing. This is a call of God to say, don't be like the Assyrians. Don't be like them. Because you see what happens to them If you start acting like them, the same thing's going to happen to you. It's against the purposes of my kingdom to act like that. And of course, our natural question is, yeah, but God does it. I mean, look at this prophecy. And we want to justify the fact that if God does it, we can do it. Forgetting that God is pure and we are not. God is righteous, and we are not. God is perfectly holy, and we are not. 
And let's be honest, most of the time, our anger comes out not because somebody else was hurt, but because we were hurt, because we were embarrassed, because we were manipulated, because we were used, because we were taken advantage of. Think about it. Most of the time, that's what triggers our anger. You look at Jesus. Jesus gets angry on just a few occasions, and every time it is anger about what is happening to people who are innocent. It is when the kingdom is misrepresented toward people who don't know any better. And when Jesus is humiliated and embarrassed and taken advantage of and abused, what does he do? He surrenders himself and dies. I wish I could stand here and say to you, I figured out all the questions that you and I have about this prophecy and about the things of God. It sort of feels like we've just sort of scratched the surface. And I, I'm sure you're thinking, as quite frankly I'm thinking, there's still so many things that I don't understand here, so many questions that are unanswered. And at some point, we have to say, we know some things, but ultimately there is a mysteriousness to the nature of God. And the call of the kingdom, the call of the gospel is not to understand everything about God. The call of the kingdom and the call of the gospel is to trust. It's to trust God. To believe that God is who he says he is. To believe that God is good. To believe that God is indeed long-suffering with us and patient. To believe that God is abounding in love. To believe that God loves to forgive us. And others, and to trust Him. And to trust that the way of the cross is the way of life. Because God is the King. In the end, we trust God because God's ultimate response to evil. God's ultimate response to evil is the cross. Where Jesus takes upon himself the full weight of evil and conquers through love. This is our God. John Oswalt says that sometimes we struggle to reconcile the love of God and the, and the wrath of God, the fear, we've, fear of God. But he says, actually, you can only understand them together. And he says he, re, he reminds his classes over and over again of this little truth. If the little God who lives under your bed says that he loves you, not that big of a deal. But if the holy, sovereign, righteous God of all who could fry you with one look of his eye says he loves you, that can change your life. My prayer is that God will change our lives. Father, thank you for 
your word to us. Help us to see you for who you are. Give us hope and faith. Help us to trust you. Amen. like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God from all that he has lavished on us through our tithes and offerings.
us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Let me remind you to um, take a minute to go down to the prayer room as you leave today and even to sign up for a time in the prayer vigil starting next Sunday. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.